This is America's Web Radio. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as generally informing the public around mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome to this September the 14th, 2016 edition of this podcast. We're going to start tonight's program with a discussion of sex. That's always going to get someone's attention, right? Well, I have to say, when I read the title of this article, I'm like, well, it says, Sex in Later Life, Better for Women Than Men. That's not necessarily unusual. There's been a lot of research about women reaching their sexual peak at an older age than men. However, when I got into the details of the article, this is rather shocking and disturbing. And so you uh, older men listening to this podcast out there, or those of you who have a partner who is an older man, need to listen up about this. Very surprising and potentially even uh, disturbing news, although <clears throat> there may be more to it than the article says. So let's see what the article says first, and then we can discuss the implications Well, apparently, having sex frequently and enjoying it puts older men at higher risk for heart attacks and other cardiovascular problems. For older women, however, good sex may actually lower the risk of high blood pressure. That's according to the first large-scale study of how sex affects heart health in later life. The federally funded research was led by a Michigan State University scholar. It was published online on September the 6th in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior. These findings challenge the widely held assumption that sex brings uniform health benefits to everyone. Researchers analyzed survey data from 2,204 people in the National Social Life, Health, and Aging Project, participants were aged 57 to 85 when the first wave of data was collected. In 2005 to 2006, another round of data was collected five years later. Cardiovascular risk was measured as high blood pressure, rapid heart rate, Elevated C-reactive protein, now C-reactive protein is a measure of inflammation in the blood. If that's above 
uh, five, let's say, then you've got something going on triggering an inflammatory process in your body. And then also they measure general cardiovascular events, heart attack, heart failure, and stroke. Well, again, as we get into the specific findings, uh, you men out there, 57 and older, and you women with partners, uh, male partners who are that age, this is pretty shocking. Older men who had sex once a week or more were much more likely to experience cardiovascular events five years later than men who were sexually inactive. The risk was not found among older women. This is very surprising. Strikingly, they found that having sex once a week or more puts older men at a risk for experiencing cardiovascular events that is almost two times greater than older men who are sexually inactive. Moreover, older men who found sex with their partner extremely pleasurable or satisfying had higher risk of cardiovascular events than men who did not feel so. Wow, so apparently these researchers really got into the details, not just how often are you having sex, but exactly to what degree you're enjoying it, and then measuring the amount uh, and frequency of cardiovascular events depending on their answers. The findings suggest that the strain and demands from a sexual relationship, I guess from a cardiovascular degree, and we won't talk about the other aspects of the relationship and the sexual part, they may be more relevant for men as they get older, become increasingly frail, and suffer more sexual problems. Hmm, this, this is a puzzler, isn't it? I mean, didn't we used to think that healthy sex with your partner and uh, your appropriate partner and enjoyable would be good for your heart, or at least not much of a strain? But we're going to get back to that shortly. Because older men have more difficulties reaching orgasm for medical or emotional reasons than do their younger counterparts, they may exert themselves to a greater degree of exhaustion and create more stress on their cardiovascular system in order to achieve climax. All right, so there's one potential answer to why this unusual finding, um, but there might be more to it as well. Testosterone levels and here it is, the use of medication to improve sexual function may also play a role. Although scientific evidence is still rare, it is likely that such sexual medication or supplements have negative effects on older men's cardiovascular health. Now, the article does not specifically mention or implicate the medications that are used to treat erectile dysfunction in men, talking about Viagra, Levitra, and Cialis. But <clears throat> you think about it, the commercials for these products on TV um, and the absurdly ridiculous disclaimers about the potential side effects, especially 
uh, the four-hour prolonged painful erections, get immediate help and uh, loss of vision and hearing, etc. But think about it. All of those disclaimers for those products also include the phrase, make sure your heart is healthy enough for sex. Uh, the reason that disclaimer is in there is because if a doctor prescribes one of those drugs to a patient, who's got some sort of compromised cardiac function, then obviously that's not appropriate. That's not safe uh, to promote and enhance sexual activity. And, uh, you know, that could be detrimental for the patient, even though, of course, treating their erectile dysfunction uh, would be a benefit to them. So we do know that there are some cardiac risks for men with uh, a weak heart, as it were, or already have compromised cardiac function. Now, um, ultimately, while moderate amounts of sex may promote health among older men, having sex too frequently or too enjoyably, how can you have sex that's too enjoyable? Uh, the article doesn't detail what the researchers mean by that. It may be a risk factor for cardiovascular problems. Well, the other thing is too frequently, um, said once a week or more. Okay. Now, for women, oh, wait a minute, I want to mention this too. Physicians, they say physicians should talk to their older male patients about potential risks of high levels of sexual activity. Uh, and perhaps screen those who frequently have sex for cardiovascular issues. Wow, it's come to this, has it, that if you're having sex uh, once a week or more, that's too frequent and don't enjoy it too much or it could compromise your heart health? Wow. Um, I'm not sure how female partners are going to feel about that. Now, for the women, it was a very different story. Female participants who found sex to be extremely pleasurable or satisfying had a lower risk of hypertension five years later than female participants who did not feel so. For the women, the study had good news. Good sexual quality may protect older women from cardiovascular risk in later life. Previous studies suggest that strong, deep, and close relationships is an important source of social and emotional support, which may reduce stress and promote psychological well-being and, in turn, cardiovascular health. Now, you would think that should help both men and women, but the uh, main author of the study commented, this may be more relevant to women than to men. Because men in all relationships, regardless of quality, are more likely to receive support from their partner than are women. However, only women in good quality relationships may acquire such benefits from their partner. Moreover, the female sexual hormone released during orgasm may also promote women's health. Uh, including women's cardiovascular health. So, very interesting findings, and 
you know, uh, what what does uh, what comes out of this? Do, do doctors recommend less frequent sex for men who have cardiovascular problems? Uh, do doctors prescribe ED drugs like Viagra and Cialis more carefully and more judiciously to male patients with cardiovascular problems? And, uh, you know, are, are other researchers going to take a look at this issue, try to replicate these findings and expand on them to follow up on these very uh, surprising findings? Well, if there are more developments uh, along these lines, I will certainly bring the issues to you, but it's hard to recommend against having uh, sex as enjoyably and as frequently as possible unless you're quite ill. All right, we're going to take a break here. We'll be back with other mental health-related issues. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true, true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. In my own private practice of psychiatry, it's been a consistent observation that certain disorders run in families, uh, a couple of them alcoholism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD, uh, alcoholism has uh, seemingly always run through the males in a family tree. That's been a consistent finding 
in my practice, it is very typical for me to observe that when um, seeing a male patient who has a problem with alcohol, then chances are his father, and in many cases his paternal grandfather, also had problems. It's so consistent. Uh, if, if my patient has male children, sons, I'll uh, go out of my way to mention when your sons uh, get to be that impressionable age when kids start experimenting with substances, keep a close eye on them. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of research to back up the genetic aspects of alcoholism. ADHD is another disorder that is well known to run in families. The stories are apocryphal where a woman brings this their son um, to the pediatrician to be evaluated because the teacher tells them they can't pay attention or sit still in school. Uh, she brings the husband, the son's father, along to the appointment. And as the doctor is going through the symptom checklist evaluating the child, the the father is sitting there saying, yeah, I was just like my son when I was his age. So it's very clear uh, that we have already known these two disorders uh, run in families. Um, but nonetheless, I wanted to bring you this article about the heredity being a major factor in ADHD, uh, alcohol dependence, and also another disorder, binge eating. Uh, binge eating has gotten a lot more attention recently with the uh, onset uh, a little more than a year ago of the first and only medication specifically approved to eat, uh, sorry, to treat rather binge eating disorder. It is principally hereditary factors that lie behind adults with ADHD often developing alcohol dependence and binge eating. That is the conclusion of a uh, doctoral thesis that came from Ling Koping University. Since heredity plays such a large role, it is important that ADHD is treated at an early stage and that measures are taken to prevent individuals developing these disorders later in life. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder has received most attention in children, but 2.5 to 5% of the global adult population also has ADHD, and really that means that it wasn't diagnosed in childhood, that it somehow escaped uh, diagnosis, but persisted on into adulthood. <clears throat> now, the uh, study was research on binge eating and alcohol dependence in adults with ADHD symptoms. Uh, we know that people with ADHD are at greater risk for substance abuse later in life, and we also know that treatment with stimulant medications, rather than increase the risk of substance abuse or dependence later in life, actually decreases that risk. Now, both binge eating and alcohol dependence are more common in adults with ADHD than in the general population. In particular, um, 
researchers looking at how much of the correlation between the disorders can be explained by hereditary factors and how much by environmental factors. Now, one of the easiest and best ways you can tease apart this hereditary versus environmental factor question or the, the classic nature versus nurture argument is to do twin studies. Now, in Sweden, they have a wonderful twin registry, so you can get excellent, excellent data to look at these questions. The Swedish twin registry has enabled researchers to compare identical twins who share 100% of their genes with fraternal twins whose genetic makeups are no more similar to each other than any pair of siblings. Twin pairs grow up in the same environment but are affected by individual environmental factors such as diseases and their circles of friends. In twin studies, researchers investigate whether correlations are stronger in identical twins than in fraternal twins. This can help them to determine whether the correlation between different conditions can best be explained by a person's genetic background, giving higher susceptibility to a condition, or whether environmental factors are significant. The four studies that are included in this research have examined more than 18,000 twin pairs aged between 20 and 46 years. The twins have completed questionnaires about the ADHD symptoms they have experienced, their consumption of alcohol and other substances, and binge eating behavior. The correlation between ADHD symptoms and binge eating in women depends mainly on a common hereditary susceptibility for the two disorders. Much of the correlation between alcohol dependence and ADHD can also be explained by genetic factors. The remainder of the correlation is explained by environmental factors that are particular for the individual. It seems that having a common environment while growing up is not significant. Since the research suggests that certain individuals inherit a susceptibility for both ADHD symptoms and dependency disorders or binge eating, these problems should be treated in parallel. When treating adults who come with some sort of dependency disorder or substance abuse behavior, it's important to remember that ADHD is very common in these patients. Conversely, it's important to treat ADHD early in life in order to prevent alcohol dependence and binge eating later in life. Well, so I think the take-home points from this research is that whereas we already had alcohol and other substance abuse issues on the radar as something that people with ADHD are at risk of, apparently now we have to add binge eating as something else that people with ADHD seem to be at risk for. Uh, 
So again, uh, it's important for people who treat those with ADHD to look at everything else that's going on in their life, not just simply are they able to pay attention, are they able to sit still, are they functioning socially, occupationally, uh, it's, or do they have a problem with alcohol or drugs, do they have a problem with binge eating, um, which basically just to briefly explain what binge eating is, it's eating much more than would be normal for a given person during a certain period of time, um, eating beyond feeling full, even to past the point of discomfort, um, and you know, eating without regard to hunger. Uh, and this is typically accompanied by feelings of disgust and embarrassment and shame about one's eating. And that certainly can happen to anyone, regardless of whether they have ADHD or not. It's just that apparently uh, having ADHD uh, seems to put one at risk for that problem, just as it puts one at risk for alcohol and drug problems. So there you have that. And we're now going to move on to a study that relates to uh, a very old bit of advice for staving off cognitive and memory problems and preventing dementia. Uh, you might very well have heard that a lot of advice given to avoid those issues are things like learn to play a new musical instrument, or if you've never learned to play one, do so, um, do puzzles, and of course there's all the games that are supposed to help with your memory and thinking, uh, everything from online or websites uh, to even uh, kids' handheld game consoles now used for adults to help you sharpen your memory. And uh, also, if you recall, no pun intended, one of the other bits of advice was learn a foreign language, or if you already know one, learn another one. Well, what's common to all of this advice, and, and which is why it was all touted to be uh, helpful, is it makes your brain make new connections among pathways and keeps the pathways active. Uh, the old use it or lose it uh, expression as far as keeping your mind sharp. And <clears throat> there was very little evidence that any of these interventions would actually work. In fact, as far as what there is hard evidence for helping to improve your memory and stave off the onset of dementia, doesn't include any of those things. Uh, all it includes is eating a heart-healthy diet, a lot of evidence for that, preventing dementia. So, you know, avoid fat, sugar, uh, just fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, lean meats. Also, regular exercise, lots of evidence for that, that helps prevent and stave off dementia. And being socially active. Uh, that also is good for preventing dementia. And it's not like the games that help you train your memory are bad for you. There's just no hard evidence. 
that they definitely help. So when we come back from this next commercial break, which we're about to take, we'll talk about some potential hard evidence that learning a foreign language can help sharpen your mind. All right, we're going to talk to you about that and other issues after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. To Psychiatry Today, this is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with the latest mental health-related news. And right now, we're going to talk about some potential evidence that one of the long-standing bits of advice about staving off the onset of dementia, that is, uh, learning a foreign language, may actually be helpful. Now, um, scientists from the higher school of economics, and uh, together with colleagues from the University of Helsinki, have discovered that learning foreign languages enhances our brain's elasticity, and its ability to code information. Uh, Let me just explain what they mean by the brain's elasticity. This is the brain's ability to form new connections, uh, to uh, make different pathways, to help assume different functions, and... uh, even to the extent of working around pathways that may be damaged uh, from aging or high blood pressure or head trauma, mini strokes, what have you. The more foreign languages we learn, the more effectively our brain reacts and processes the data accumulated in the course of learning. 
Okay, an article summarizing these new findings was recently published in the journal Scientific Reports. According to the study, the neurophysiological mechanics of language and speech acquisition are underexplored when compared to the brain's other functions. The reason for such scarce attention is that so much of the research is done on test animals, and of course you can't look at language function in other than humans. Researchers carried out experiments where the brain's electrical activity was measured with electroencephalography, or EEG. This is where you put sensors on someone's scalp to measure their brain waves. 22 students in total, 10 men and 12 women, participated in the investigation, with the average age being 24. Okay, now right off the bat, this is a serious limitation of this research. Not only are we talking about an extremely small number of subjects, but they're all grad students uh, in their early 20s. Um, this is clearly not very generalizable, and especially if we're thinking about how this is going to help elasticity and plasticity in the brain of older folks, then we need to have him uh, or have, have them uh, look at uh, those populations. The subjects had electrodes placed on their heads and then listened to recordings of different words in their native language as well as in foreign languages, both known and completely unknown by the subjects. When the known or unknown words popped up, changes in the brain's activity were tracked. Researchers especially focused on the speed at which the brain readjusted its activity to treat unknown words. Afterwards, the accrued neurophysiological data was compared to the subject's linguistic background, how many languages they knew, at which age they started to learn it, and so on. The experiment has shown that the brain's electrical activity of those participants who had already known some foreign languages was higher. The author of the study commented that the more languages someone mastered, the faster the neuron network coding the information on the new words was formed. Consequently, this new data stimulates the brain's physiology. Loading the mind with more knowledge boosts its elasticity. Scientists believe that understanding how the brain functions in acquiring language is of crucial importance in diagnosing speech impediments after accidents, strokes, and other related conditions, and finding ways to treat them. Moreover, when we achieve better insight into the principles of creating and strengthening neuron networks, we will be able to harness these mechanisms, speed them up, and improve the learning process. Well, you know, the, the research is interesting and Hopefully, it will stimulate further looks at this in much larger populations and older ones. 
Unfortunately, I don't think it's uh, conclusive evidence that we can add learning foreign languages to the list of those things that definitely look like they help stave off the onset of dementia. Um, you know, is it reasonable to think that if you were uh, learning more languages at an earlier age, could it stave off dementia later in life? That's also possible. But again, that would have to be looked at, and it would take uh, longitudinal studies, um, that is, follow people who knew or learned multiple languages, say at the age uh, of subjects in this study, 24 or so, and follow them into their 50s and 60s and see uh, which may develop dementia or not. Uh, but I will say this, it's not as if you shouldn't learn a foreign language if you were interested in doing it anyway. Um, the more you stimulate the brain, the better off you're going to be, regardless of the evidence or not. Uh, but I think there's not enough to say you should just do that only for the reason of preventing dementia. Again, the things that we know for a fact will prevent dementia, exercise, social activity, heart-healthy diet. All right, now we are going to turn our attention to some negative health consequences of certain aspects of social media. Now, regular and long-time listeners to this podcast will know that I've often talked about the effects of bullying and peer abuse that would include cyberbullying, uh, so that includes anything electronic, whether it's email, which is so old-fashioned, right, text, or social media. Um, but I have to admit, even though I've often seen articles out there specifically talking about Facebook, one of the most popular social media platforms, if not the most popular, I haven't t talked about them. Uh, there are been lots of articles about Facebook depression, for examples. Uh, I just haven't been that impressed with the science behind any of these to spend any time talking about it, even though this issue has been out there for several years. But when I saw this article, I said, well, you know, this definitely seems like it's worth discussing. So... Those of you who are Facebook devotees may be interested to hear this. It turns out that negative experiences on Facebook have been linked to increased depression risk in young adults. In the first study of its kind, public health researchers show that young adults who reported having negative experiences on Facebook including bullying, meanness, misunderstandings, or unwanted contacts, were at significantly higher risk of depression, even accounting for many possible confounding factors. It's important that people take interactions on social media seriously and don't think of it as somehow less impactful 
because it's a virtual experience as opposed to an in-person experience. <clears throat> now, the research was performed as a part of a doctoral thesis at Brown University. Facebook is a very different type of form that has real emotional consequences. Now, the study is, well, at the time I'm, I'm recording the podcast, it's actually in press, but it's supposed to come out in the Journal of Adolescent Health. Now, this study is novel in a couple of ways, two important ways. One is the measurement of the prevalence, frequency, severity, and nature of the negative interpersonal experiences as reported by the 264 participants. Other studies have used such measures as the amount of time spent using social media or the general tone of items in news feeds. The other is that because the young adult participants were also enrolled as adolescents in the New England Family Study, the researchers knew how participants were faring in 2002 before the advent of Facebook. The study therefore suggests that their later negative experiences on Facebook likely led to their increased levels of depressive symptoms rather than just reflecting them. So according to the researchers, they say this is as close as you can get to answering the question, do adverse experiences on Facebook cause depression? They knew how the participants were doing as kids before they had any Facebook use. Then they saw what happened on Facebook, and then they saw how they were faring as young adults. Uh, they say it permits them to answer the which comes first question, adverse experiences on Facebook or depression, low self-esteem, and the like. One of the study's most basic findings is that 82% of the 264 participants reported having at least one negative Facebook experience since they started using the service, and 55% had one in the year before they were surveyed in 2013 or 2014. Among the participants, 63% said they had four or more negative experiences during their young lifetimes. So at the very least, the study can safely conclude that many young people uh, will have some negative emotional experiences uh, as a result of being on Facebook. Will finish up our look at the results of the study and look at other mental health issues when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby, the first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind, Passport Transport your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. 
The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. At the moment, we're talking about a study documenting the impact of negative experiences on Facebook and the risk of depression in young adults, negative experiences including outright cyberbullying or at least meanness, unwanted contacts, etc. 24% of the study sample reported moderate to severe levels of depressive symptoms on the standard Center for Epidemiological Studies depression scale. Now, to determine the risk of depressive symptoms independently attributable specifically just to the negative Facebook experiences, Researchers in their statistical analysis controlled for depression as adolescence, for parental mental health, gender, race, ethnicity, reported social support, daily Facebook use, frequency, average monthly income, educational level, and employment. And after making all those adjustments, they found that among people who experienced any negative experiences on Facebook, the overall risk of depressive symptoms was about 3.2 times greater than among those who had not. The risk varied in many ways, for instance, by the kind of negative experience. Bullying or meanness was associated with a three and a half times elevated risk whereas unwanted contact on Facebook had a milder association of about two and a half times the risk of depression. Frequency also mattered. Significantly elevated risks of depression were only associated with unwanted contacts or misunderstandings if there were four or more of them, but even just one to three instances of bullying or meanness was associated with a higher risk of depressive symptoms. Similarly, the more severe a person perceived the incidents to be, 
the more likely they were to be showing signs of depression, which is logical. Now, it will take more research to determine who might be at most specific or strongest risk for potential depression related to negative experiences on Facebook. But for now, it may be prudent for teens and young adults to recognize that negative experiences on Facebook and arguably other social media as well could lead to prolonged symptoms of depression and that if they have negative emotions related to Facebook experiences, it might be worthwhile to take a break. Another strategy might be to unfriend people who are becoming sources of these negative experiences. There is research that shows that people tend to feel more entitled to bully online than they do in person or engage in unwanted contact online than they would in person. In some ways, it's higher risk. It's worth people being aware of that risk. And this extends beyond simply just social media platforms to things like online reviews and uh, comments on news stories and comments on other people's postings and so on. Uh, it seems as if people are emboldened by the apparent anonymity of these platforms uh, to say extremely hateful and hurtful things that they wouldn't in person. Uh, so really there is a lot of danger of abuse out there, verbal emotional abuse in, in a written form on electronic media in general that can have a negative impact. Now this particular article didn't address another aspect that has been associated with um, past reports about <coughs> Facebook depression, so-called. Uh, that is, people looking at someone's Facebook postings and seeing all the great and happy and fun times they're having and feeling bad about themselves because they aren't sharing in that or having similar experiences. Uh, so this article didn't take a look at that. It would be interesting if that was, had been one of the other factors they were looking at. But probably the reason is because that's something that has been looked at and talked about and written about more so in adults. Um, and this is, uh, of course, looking at young adults. But I think in general, there are just some people who are better off not looking so often at Facebook and being subjected to this uh, abuse or bullying or meanness or unwanted contact. Um, narrow the circle of people you stay in touch with. Uh, be more judicious about accepting friend requests. Go into your account settings and adjust them accordingly. Um, or, or maybe just close your account if it's more trouble than it's worth. Uh, that may sound drastic to some Facebook devotees, but at the end of the day, if it's going to cause you a lot of emotional distress, in my opinion, it's not worth it. And there are certainly 
uh, other ways to stay in touch with those in your life that mean something to you and would not uh, bring about these negative experiences that cause your emotional state to deteriorate. Next up on Psychiatry Today, any of you out there have arachnophobia, fear of spiders? Well, this next item may be interesting, uh, but I think it also has potentially wider implications for people with other types of anxiety and fears, uh, which many people suffer from. And a common treatment for these problems is called exposure therapy. It's a type of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. A new study has shown the effect of exposure therapy can be improved by disrupting the recreation of fear memories in people with arachnophobia. Studies show that up to 30% of all people suffer an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. Anxiety leads to great suffering for those affected, but can be treated with exposure therapy in which the patient is gradually exposed to the object or context that provokes the reactions. If exposure therapy is successful, a new safe memory is formed which overshadows the old fear memory. Now the key is the gradual exposure to the fearful stimulus, uh, giving someone the opportunity to have a relaxed state while getting more and more exposed to the fearful stimulus, thus uh, overcoming it and replacing it with uh, a memory of not being so afraid of it. Not everyone is helped by this treatment, in part because the learning that takes place during the treatment isn't permanent. The bad memory, as it were, may return at some point later on after an initially successful exposure. Memory researchers have now demonstrated that the improvement can be made more lasting. When a person is reminded of something, the memory becomes unstable and is re-saved. If you disrupt the resaving of the memory, the so-called reconsolidation, the creation of the memory can be disrupted and the memory that is saved can be changed. A fear memory could thus be weakened or erased, and this offers hope for improved treatment of anxiety disorders in general. But until now, there's been doubt if this would be possible because older and stronger memories have been proven difficult to disrupt. The study was published in the journal Current Biology. Researchers now for the first time have shown that it is possible to use this method to reduce fear in lifelong phobias. They exposed individuals with arachnophobia to spider pictures while measuring their brain activity in the amygdala, a part of the brain that is strongly linked to fear and not only fear, it's pretty much our fear center, but it's the emotional aspects of fearful stimuli that that area of the brain controls. They found that an activation of the fear memory consisting of a mini exposure 10 minutes before a more extensive exposure 
that is to spider pictures, led to significantly reduced amygdala activity when the subjects looked at the spider pictures again the following day. Because the memory is made unstable before exposure and resaved in its weakened form, the fear does not return as easily. The day after exposure, the group that received an initial activation of their spider fear showed reduced activity in their amygdala in comparison with the control group. Avoidance of spiders also decreased, which could be predicted from the degree of the amygdala activation. It is striking that such a simple manipulation so clearly affects brain activity in this uh, specific region that controls fear and the emotional responses to fearful stimuli, and then also affects behavior. A simple modification of existing treatments could possibly improve effects. This would mean more people getting rid of their anxieties after treatment and fewer relapses of anxiety. And again, this does, uh, in my opinion, have greater implications well beyond just dealing with arachnophobia or other similar simple uh, phobia disorders. Uh, this is potentially widely applicable to treatment of other anxiety disorders, uh, especially PTSD. Uh, and uh, think about how helpful that could be, especially to our combat veterans, if this method could be applied to treating that. Well, that's going to wrap up tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and that is found interesting and informative. But above all else, I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.